This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready to go? <clears throat> I'm ready. All right. My guest today, when I first met Andreas Kalani, I had never met him before. We had chatted online. I met him at the Blade Show, and the first thing he did was hug me. Andres, how the fuck are you? <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All is good. You're, how are you doing? Your knives, you're a knife maker and out in California, and your knives are so striking because not only do you do kind of traditional stuff, but you st- I feel like you do this, these beautiful traditional kind of knives, hunting knives and culinary knives, but then you start to kind of step away out into like – into the design the similar to kind of the designs of cars similar to a lot of nature and big shapes and big designs and lots of contrasting colors you you are you're the and plus all your sheaths you're like the total package in regards to kind of the beauty <laughs> of knife making is that okay that i say that well thank you appreciate it um yeah to be honest with you this all you said it goes back to my background you just mentioned it to every corner of what i was doing originally i mean as an artist as you are yourself too we like to create sculptures you know and doing different things and um for me knife is other than it's functional is a sculpture so and and the complete sculpture is the one with the sheath for example included and you want to add your own touch to it so I not personally, I looking at it as a knife knife is that I'm going to sculpt this piece of steel and make it to something and add other material to look cool and different shape. See, you know, that's how I look at it. I think that that, I think that you're, you're, I have, I've always, and you, you, we've talked, you listen to knife talk, you know how I feel about what art, what's art and what's not art. Your, your definition of, of how you see it as art is a little bit more complex than what these guys I meet who say I'm a knife artist. I, I think that there's a lot more thought into into regards to what you do. And I know that you must have gone to art school. Yeah, I mean, not traditionally to being really at it. I was, the, I was actually a bio major. I was studying to being a next generation of the Kalani's doctors. But I, I didn't want to go. I love biology, but I loved art at the same time, too. So I took special classes that I needed as I was going through the high school or even college time. I just took these classes that I needed, such as drawing, sculpting, the one that I loved it. I didn't want to go through the history of Van Gogh to figure out right. what the heck has happened. I just like his work. If it was good, I will take it in my advantage. But if it's not, I just move on. You know? Hmm. So it was, it was a little bit different, but I did a lot of different things. I mean, um, <laughs> my sister actually the other day, she was looking at my uh, portfolio and she said, that, is there anything that you don't do? I mean, I was doing stage design, makeup design, uh, just uh, modeling designs, and then doing a lot of sculptures and um, so many things. And I love to create it. You know, it's not only about, the piece what it is knife it happened to be the cool one right. that i loved it from childhood but now i can implement all other knowledge too yeah 
Well, I can see that because even when I look at some of the stuff you do, you do a lot of knife handles with, you know, there'll be horns or bones or, or and then there's, you know, there are these beautiful kind of accents and there just seems to be a whole, like a roundness, like a wholeness to the, to the, the overall design of your work, which definitely kind of makes me know that you had some sort of, you know, you had some sort of care in regards to how you wanted it to look, especially with the stuff that you've done with the, um, the gal the natural galaxy work that you do yeah that came a long way that these natural galaxy pieces for for the listener can you kind of tell us what that is sure um traditionally actually i was just fascinated it was a time like three years ago it was i just started getting fascinated with the resin right oh resin so much stuff with it and then I had my Kickstarter running and I had a whole bunch of leftover cutoffs from a colorful uh, Bakai wood. And I started mixing those in a clear resin and it became a really cool handle material. Hmm. And at the time, I was selling my chef knives in a swap, swap meet in Orange County every Saturday and Sunday. And it happened that my next door neighbor, he was selling, um, you know, the actual... I don't know what is they call it potpourri. The potpourri, one that is, yes. Yeah, yes. he was selling all sort of stuff. So potpourri, if, if potpourri is basically just dried flowers and herbs that ultimately make your bathroom smell not like you went there. Yeah, exactly. But he had it without any addition of the odors or anything sense to it. Right. So I asked him if I can get some of those, and I started adding that. So that's how he just got started. But again. At some point, I really missed the time that I was doing the modeling and you were creating a model of scenery and a train goes through it, you know, and getting explosions and all that stuff or different things. So I said, why can I make this one in a micro level, like hmm. make it shrink it down and make the scenery really small instead of a big scale that I was doing? So that was the fun thing for me because at the end, you're just sitting and putting all these flowers and planting it. But Every species of the plants, they have to be dehydrated before you're putting it inside a resin. So that's another part of it. Right. So you just to, just to kind of head back just a hair, just sorry for interrupting. Yeah. When you said you were doing modeling, were you doing, it was modeling like for yourself or for, for a company or? I started doing it for myself. And then it happens that I was working in Irvine. This is like 10, 15 years ago. It happened to that I was working as a freelancer graphic designer in Irvine, and I rent an office from another graphic designer guy. And he was a really cool guy. He was he had like a, he was totally a down to earth person. He was from Colorado, came down there, really a good mentor too. I asked him if I can design his uh, entrance of his office for the Halloween to make it as a kind of like a monster house. Yeah. and he was the he was the fan of the rob zombie and he said hell yeah why not let's do this so long story short by making that and doing so many of the small stuff in the office throughout the years his clients started to asking me do stuff and then i started doing a couple small little commercial for wineries and i was making the scenery of the winery for example and then the camera was going over it as a micro level but when you look at it it's not actually a drone is a micro camera was going over the model. Where did you so learn you to do that? that? 
Uh, I mean, I didn't do the filming. I was just making the model. Where did you learn how to make it? Because I know what you're saying. Because when I was a kid, my dad had train sets for me. And I loved all the little parts. And once in a while, we would go to a train, like a, sto- a hobby store, and you could buy little trees or you could buy little plants and stuff. And when I see that, what you're doing, that's what that's what you were doing is you were creating these like um, these scenes, these micro scenes. Yeah. Where did you that's learn to do that? Part. Um, you know, when you're making a big scale and you have the idea how it works and what you need, what type of a material you need, now you need to scale everything down and shrink it down, but it just takes time. Like, for example, if I want to make a small little scenery, you want to embed that one in a knife handle, which is about say one and a half inch height. And the width is about almost an inch because you're going to like carve it down. Yeah. So the whole entire concentration has to be in the center of that block. So you just make everything around that and then you're expanding it. I mean, at the end, when some of these blocks, when you look at them, say, oh, I don't want to grind that. That looks pretty itself, you know? But at the end, it's so fun when you have them inside the knife handle and you see the whole entire scenery. And that's why I call them natural galaxy. You're holding a piece of natural, of the nature, frozen in a fraction of a time in your hand like you have it it's just solid at that time it really is fascinating because it's a total you've created a moment you've created a moment and the the one that i've seen a lot of them i'm a huge fan actually funny funny thing is is i recently had this uh, hornet problem and yeah. we had a, i had this giant um uh, I don't remember the name of the horn. Is a white-headed horn, some horn. It is awful. And I posted about this horn, these hornet's nests. We got to get rid of them. And you and Jeremy Spake and a few other people were saying you got to keep those hornets. And then and you were saying you gotta you gotta send me some, and I'll make yeah. you a knife handle with the hornets. But, but the funny thing was, it was, I was like, okay, great, yeah, no problem. Well, when the exterminator came, he sprayed something in that. I said, well, what's going to happen to all the, all the hornets? He goes, well, they're going to dissolve. Oh, and no. they were, uh, he sprayed some kind of gook into the, into the hive. Like an acid powder. I, it was like a, yeah, it was like an acid powder. And they, there was, there was no, there was no nothing. I mean, it was, it was, oh. they were dissolved. So I was just like, Ugh. I really kind of wish I had. And I even told my wife, that. I was like, my friend Andreas is going to, is going to make a, a handle with some of those uh, hornets that stung me and the dog. And, and then, unfortunately, that's not the case. No. But, you know, actually, I started searching around. There are some crazy guys out there that they actually making a good money out of it on eBay. The guy, he owns a big farm in Texas, and he hunts a whole bunch of bugs, and he dries them out, and he sells them on eBay for 30 bucks for 50 bucks. Wow. And then you can <laughs> stick them in your handle. And then, cause that's, yeah. I guess the first time I really saw, I don't know if it's the first time, but one of the ones, the more notable ones, was I actually last week I was talking to Don Nguyen, and you did one of those handles for one of his knives. And he, I guess you both posted, it was his knife that he just kind of used it. The knife was just, I mean, you know, his, you, both of you guys are like, have to be buddies because the, you, there's such a similarity in terms of the kind of like the, the design aspect of it, but his patinaed knife with your galaxy, uh, the yeah. natural galaxy handle was just such a stunning thing. It was, and it you was know what I liked just, about it myself? I what? asked Don when I actually gave him the block, I asked him, I said it. 
if you just come up with whatever finish you think that is cool on it i want to see how you're going to finish it and then the way he came out with that frosty look with that sateen look on his blade yeah. it was really gorgeous i mean it just popped out everything and in Blade show at that time, I remember we were in Oregon and everybody, they were wow for it. So he took it out of a bag and they said, oh my God, the whole knife was amazing. The you colors, know? the colors of the, of the, of the colors of the, uh, the vegetation for lack of a better word inside and the <laughs> yeah. color of the, of, of the acrylic. The, the interesting thing is, is I love, I love that. I love acrylic wood hybrids. Like we call them, I call them. I mean, yours are natural galaxy because you have things inside. Normally, yeah. when I get when I get them, I usually it'll be a burl with like a, I like the kind of uh, the the kind that you can't see through because my in my sometimes they look great with when I do them and sometimes I do a terrible job. But you the when you do it the way you do it, where you're actually creating this still, I mean, it's a still life. You're creating exactly. a still life that's encapsulated into this clear resin. You're doing something different than a lot of other people because you're kind of creating. You know, when you look at a knife, when you look at a, or any, you look at a sculpture. Normally, you don't really see through it, and when you're creating the still life in the handle, you're adding something that is. It's a, thir- a third dimension it's to, like, to it, the handle. I was going to. I was trying to figure out how to use. That. I think the third. Dim- it's even more. It might be the fourth dimension, or something like that. But no. I know what you're saying. But the reality is that when you go. Here is an interesting part. I've been doing so many galleries over here, co-op gallery with so many artists and so many of them, they were photographer. And I could see it when you having a photography gallery, people, they're staring at the stuff much longer because it's frozen. It's just one picture and one slide frozen at that time. And people, they can go to the depth of that picture to figure out what it is and why it took where they took it, all that stuff. But when you're watching a movie, you're just watching the whole thing or right. something different. But that was the whole concept for me. When you're making Natural Galaxy, you're frozening a, one fraction of a nature in that moment. And that's all you see. But you can look at it in all angles, from top, left, bottom, right, and you see them all, everything. Yeah, they're That just, was the fun part. They're so... It's such an adi- it's such another addition, and and it does, especially considering you do them and you put them together. And I've seen you know videos of you with tweezers and and glues and the kind of glue that you need a, a ultraviolet light to set. And it, yeah. there's there's so much more. You have you're creating so much. There's so much more control in what you're putting out in the world, and it's just it's very. I'm very envious of it. Actually, we had my wife has been every time we go for a walk. Uh, if there's a dead bug on the ground, she grabs it and she will walk miles with her palm out with like a dragonfly or a bumblebee or, and, and it's like, she wants to do something with it. And we, I, I did, I tried fooling around with a little bit of, uh, I don't remember what I used. I think I used some West systems some extra West systems or something like that. Mm. And it was like, I made her like a keychain, and she was just like, I need you to make more of this. I'm like, all right, I, mean, I guess I'm gonna have to talk to Andreas. <laughs> Cause I don't, I don't, I got too many bubbles going on here. The one I did one B, the bubbles stopped and it looked like he was like it was his last bubble breath. It was really like unsettling because it was like you know. Yeah, obviously- sometimes you get really surprised result out of it, and it makes it much more cool. Instead of oh wow. But I mean, at the same time, it's like he's like trapped, drowning in the resin. It just like I was like, oh, this is this isn't as 
this is a little no it depends on how you look at it to be honest i mean some of them you can just do different way of because the resin you have a whole bunch of chunk of a clear so you can just cut it around it and doing different things and another good part about these type of resin is that if you grinding it and if, when it's clear when right. you're grinding it and you say oh my god i grind it too much you can put it back in the cast and put another resin and it's going to be seamless you know, you can just grow it back up and just make it up. But if you have something that you're cutting off a wing of a bee, then you're done. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's the one thing I would be worried about. Is I know you and I, you said, what do you want? I, I want one of you. I want to make knives with your, I want to make knives with your natural gas. But here's a funny thing. The other day I was looking at your page and, you know, you have that wall with all these lures yeah. that are just going up. So imagine that one in a micro level inside the knife. Well, here's that, you know, it's funny that you say that because I've been trying, the more I do this, the more I think it's, the less I think that knife making for me, for me personally, I don't really get into the, I don't really look at it in a very, uh, I don't look at it in a very sentimental way. I'm interested in it as, trying new things to make better business. That to me is the art. I, yeah, I, I had the sculpture. I had the sculpture game for a while and I love it. And I'm going to go back. I thought I was never going to go back to it, but in the past few months I've been working on a project that I'm really, really kind of excited for. When I get a little bit of time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to knock a couple more lures out, but I was trying to figure out recently. I wanted to do, and I'll tell you because you're my friend, I wanted to do a knife where I wanted to make, you know, um, if you look at Charlie Lionheart, Charlie, Lion, you know, Charlie Ellis. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, have yeah. him on coming up. He's such a good guy. He makes those quikins. I guess that's how you call them. Quikins, right? Quikins, quikins. I always get Don't them. ask me. All right, good, good, good. <laughs> I'm with you. That is not my, that's the right answer. Don't ask me. I have the same way. I don't never know how to pronounce anything. So they're like these kind of like, they look like those Japanese, they're Japanese style knives. And the handle is interesting because he'll make these little plates and the yeah. plates will be like for the latter back of a better word scales and then he'll pin the scales but there's like an overlap so like the that full tang knife overlaps the scales and then yes. he'll wrap and then he'll wrap the um he'll wrap the whole knife with that uh the japanese style um you know shoe shoelace i don't know that, I think that's what they call it but that's what yeah, we call it. the leather right and it looks great so I was always thinking, I was like, I'd love to do something like that, but then that scale would be a lure. And then I could Oh, do... nice, yeah. So, so what I wanted to do was I'm trying to figure out how I can make scales that would be like a plastic lure. But not like a, like a, like a, I wanted it to be, like in my mind, it needs to be a little bit more than just... A, I do, I've been fooling around with painting on fluid. It's just like, I know it's not something that's going to last. I've been working on it. I want to work on a way to make a plastic scale or plastic or uh, g10 ain't gonna work a multicolored uh, lure kind of like my lures and then i put them as this those are the scales so that the, the head of the lure is kind of sticking out towards the ricasso that's actually in terms of sculpture that's kind of where i wanted to go because I, if it was up to me i would do less i would do more forging less grinding and less handle and more sculpture so that's but here's the interesting part you know you can make one really nice and clean one with no color and get a mold out of that one cut it in half get a mold out of that one and then pour out your resin you can even put different types of things in it right you know pour out your resin and then you can even do there's a technique that you can 
brush the actual mold first and then put your resin inside it and then just getting it. You will see, I mean, I have some stuff. <clears throat> I made a whole entire skull set just like that. Hmm. But you can do that one. So you have a set already set up. Yeah. Every time you can change the colors with a different powder. So you'd say that well, however you want to design it, but the size is always the same. Right. Well, that's, you know? that's a great idea. Reproduction, that one, like numerous times, or you can make like a few molds and then make like, three at a time i want to figure i want to also figure out some something where the the color because of the color i don't want to do one color i want to do like five or six colors i want them to be very crisp and i don't want them to be worn away no i can definitely show you there is a way uh uh, i i do that one actually for a lot of uh bronze powders brass and uh copper powders so you kind of there's a name for it i forgot what it is but it's kind of like uh you brushing and you're putting the whole entire dust of the color or whatever it is inside the mold and you remove the excessive one and then you pour the resin on top. Hmm. Then when you take out the actually uh, final piece, all that powder is already dissolved and got inside the surface of the resin. So huh. if you grind it, you will get to the clearer. But in the surface, is exactly the same. So if you have it exactly the size that you want it for your handles to be, yeah. you can have that one ready and pre-make it and just... When I mean, this is all over... That's what the Alumilite is the great about it. I, I love that to do and be able to do these things. I, You know, I, when this is all over, I'm going to send... I got to do a drawing and I send it to you and see if we, maybe you can figure out how, help me figure out how to do it easy. Um, I, the Alumilite thing has always been fascinating to me. I don't know. I bought a couple. I bought a small mold. And I bought so aluminite. It's basically like a two-part epoxy for the most part, and it's and then that's what people do. People put it like I know they use pressure pots and other that's things. That's one of it. And they try. They to... have epoxy and resin. They're different. Hmm. Epoxy is the one that you don't need to put it in a pressure tank, and it just uh, some of them they're so smooth. The one that they make in a river table out of it. Yeah, they're so soft that you can get the bubbles away just by torching on the top. But the resin, the one that they have it, that's the one that it needs to go inside the pressure tank because the resin, just by itself and outside, it will absorb much more bubble. Huh. So you need to put it under pressure so no bubble come out of it or go inside. How did you learn all this? I don't know. Throughout the time and a great customer service, I guess. They're, I was talking to them for so long and now I became friend with them. Because Natural Galaxy was my thing, and I wanted it to keep him. So these guys, they really helped me, to be honest. And, um, uh, and, and just also learning about the, uh, actually, the, you know, the hardness. We have a hardness level for our steel. They have a hardness level for epoxy versus resin. So the resin is the most highest. I used to use um, acrylic. And man, acrylic, I, had, I made a beautiful knife out of it. And I gave it to the chef. He used it accidentally two weeks later dropped down and he shattered and that's where i actually came across of others i said i cannot use the acrylic anymore because the acrylic is really pretty and it gives you a perfect result but it's really like a glass so the alumilite resin it was the one that is doesn't break and i hit it everywhere and i did so much pressure testing on it and it works really well for a knife in the kitchen you know, hmm. so if it falls off or if something's happened, and then now I, I finalized the way that how am I going to use it? Now I was actually working with them 
about a month ago figured out i think that i'm in the pretty much final stages to figure it out how i'm going to finish them up then i can actually confidently offer that one to other makers because now i know how you can put the final finish on right because no matter what when you're grinding these flowers at some point they're going to show the tip and some of the area and you have to kind of cover that one i used to use different types of glue but after a while it was chipping so now i figured out if with their another type of a resin that how you're going to cover that one and you don't need any pressure tank because so. that's the the problem is is if you is when you're recutting when you're cutting them down and you have to when you go through a flower or something like that you are losing some of that quality exactly exactly so that's why i'm trying to make sure they're in this dead center like a core of the knife belly handle right. area so yeah and it depends on i mean sometimes you make some designs and then you can draw i usually go and draw my handle over the block and hmm. then i move it up and down so i can get the perfect position out of it, right. you know but you will see a new series i have i have a lot of them i made them ready i just need to finalize them right now they all look frosty i need to kind of like buffing them out and then we should be good to go that's very good well let's just head back a little bit to the to the young ak young hmm. ak i need to know about young ak where did you grow up I grew up in Iran, in capital city, Tehran. Um, I was technically, right now, it's been 20 years I was in that country, and 20 years I'm in this country. So, so I'm half and half. So you're 40? Yes, I'm just turned So, So when you were born, the, revol- the Iranian revolution happened, because it happened in 1978. So exactly. So you, you must have been one or two. Yeah, uh, well, I born in the year of revolution. It was uh, 1980, and huh. the war started right after that. So, yeah, I born exactly at that crazy hustle. It was a big trip. We were the generation of transition from the Shah to the Islamic Revolution. Hmm. What was that like? I mean, for us, I was actually had this conversation with my parents the other day because when I was there, I was de- I hated history just because it was mandatory in the school to get the grade to go to the next one. But now that I'm here and I grow up, I really love to read about it more and learn more. And, and I figured out that how they were living in the Shah time and what was the ideology of the Shah was at the time. And then when the Ayatollah came in, I didn't, we didn't know anything. I mean, we, in the house... We had our own, you know, we, my father, he always had his own, you know, like alcohol drinks and different types of right. stuff. So, but we were learned to not to talk about these in the school, you know? So well, yeah. that, that was kind of like, you just trying to cover your mouth and not to say anything and just accept the bullshit. But at the same time, it was time that I personally come, I mean, there were so many conflicts for so many kids because there were some. Same as me, the parents, they were loved the Shah and they were believed on that. But now they got stuck in Iran and um, now it's, they have to move on with the life. The kids going to the Islamic school now. So it's so just, just for way a different. Bit of, a little bit of like a, like a fresher, refresher course for a lot of our, a lot of my listeners are like very young. And maybe this isn't something that they know about, but in, I, I'm under the impression like 78, 79, before then, uh, Iran was under the control of the Shah. 
Yes. And he was far more Western. Yes. He he actually he studied in he studied in Paris and um he was fluent in four different languages and he knew he knew the politics and he knew everything and his father was one of the big king of Iran and um when when he became the king when, when father passed away he became king of the kings. So that's how he announced himself and um then the craziness of the politics of the West didn't like what he said and what he wanted it to do, and they just made the revolution happen in Iran, unfortunately. So the, the Islamic clerics headed by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm-hmm. Backed by UK. Back, oh, backed by the UK. Yeah. Overthrew him and then basically started this Islamic state. And then it just backslashed that everywhere. I mean, they thought that by just going, having the Ayatollah there, they're going to do that. And then that was a time that Carter was inside the office. Right. And that's when the actually the hostage taking happened. These are all like pre-planned, you know, it wasn't just like randomly happening because the people that actually, here's an interesting part. I was reading it the other night. The exact same lady that she caused that people went to the embassy and got the actual hostages, her own son right now studying in the United States. <laughs> so I'm just, just shocked. Instead of why the hell even allowing these families to having their kids over here? Because that was one of the issues, wasn't the issues that once, once the, the uh, Ayatollah came in, they kicked out the Americans, uh, all the American embassies and, it was really became from what I understand. I had a, one of my first girlfriends. Her mother was fled the Shah, um, came to the United States, which is a lot of a, a lot of uh, Iranian families fled uh, fled from the Shah, or fled from the uh, from, from Khomeini after the revolution. And and it, there's there's this sense, there's almost a sense that it was the intellectuals, the scientists, the more Western people were kind of like. Th- kicked out or left out of fear or got killed or got killed yeah. what did your parents do well my dad here's the crazy part for him poor guy i feel bad for him I mean, right now i'm happy for him but at the time he he my to give you a little bit backstory about the family my uncle my dad's uh, older brother he was the asia uh, champion of the soccer and he hmm. was really well known. Everybody knows Kalani, and he was totally uh, blue eyes, blonde hair, and the same same parents, same everything. But my aunt and my uncle became blonde and blue eyes. And he was famous for his because he was doing a lot of crazy stuff with his foot soccer playing. So he was uh, the golden Kalani. He was famous for. And he was my called dad, the golden Kalani. Yeah, because what of a his hair. Great name. <laughs> so. I think at I'm going to t- call you the golden <laughs> So at the time, my dad was a child. I mean, he was about like maybe, say, at 10, 13. He was almost a teenager. And my grandfather didn't want him to get melted with all the celebrity life of my uncle because he was way older than him. Right. He didn't want to get involved. So he sent him to the United States to his brother over here at a time. So he came over here and he started going to school and um, he pretty much started his uh uh teenager time over here and he went to school over there he went to a 
university and all that stuff. And then at some point, he was always in love with my mom from childhood. And they decided he was going traveling back and forth. At some point, my father came back to Iran to marry my mom. And the day that he came in Iran, it was the same exact day that the Ayatollah came in Iran. And they closed down all the boat borders. <sighs> nobody could go out and nobody could go in. And it was done for a year or so. And my daddy was right about the time to get into med school over here. He just came to marry my mom, come back to go to the med school. So he couldn't read and write in Farsi either. So he had to transfer himself to another city that he had an English language university. And he went to the med school over there. So as soon as he finished his med school, the war started. And he had to go two years of service plus two years of internship in a red line. What's the red line? Like mash right in the front of the red line. Oh. So, so he was he was in, he was a medical he was a doctor he was a field doctor. Yeah, he was a field doctor and we never knew when he's going out if he's going to come back. You know, it was just really crazy for 8 years and he was part of it for 4 years but for 8 years it was a war. So do it was you really remember do you remember when he would go off to, to you know, serve? You know at a time I remember me and my sister we were so happy when he was coming back home. You know, we were seeing him, you know, it was just, oh my God, daddy's home and all that stuff. But I didn't realize anything until I came here and um, I was seeing our veteran were coming back and I right. see the reaction of the kids toward their father. And I was just like tearing up myself and said, oh, oh my God, sure. you know, it was just kind of like a flashback. But I did at the time, we didn't know if how dangerous it is his job, you know, we're, I mean, we didn't know that how blessed we are that we seeing him back. Because after the war, uh, I don't know how many. We had about a million deaths in that war. So there were so many. And that many was the war with Iraq? Iraq, yeah. Yeah, they wanted to invade Iran and get the, an area that Iran and Iraq, they are the, the reason that they're so important for the world. Because in a one location between the border of Iran and Iraq, we have a uranium mine. So that's how the nuclear and all that stuff is coming out. Hmm. So that's why they want to control over it. And this is, goes back way back to the Shah time. Hmm. You know, so that's why the war was happening around that area. And then nothing happened. Millions of people died. And um, nobody declared winning or anything. Nothing. Seriously, right. nothing happened. No Except border change. died. Exactly. It was just an awful war ever. So what was it like growing up in, in Tehran under Khomeini? Now, obviously, you had parents who were more on intellectual side. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like they most likely, if, if he had booze and told you not to say a word at the school, he was obviously a little bit more Western, it, it, I would imagine, because he's already did some, you know, spent time in the United States. Yeah, exactly. It must have been very, very difficult for growing up for him and f and that must have been tough for you too yeah so it was different i mean at the end my dad he became a family physician he had his office but under the house and he was a doctor well known inside the neighborhood and my mom she was the first businesswoman uh in the actually i don't know what they call it it was just in the service of the business between iran and canada at a time and hmm. She was always doing business and entrepreneur and all that stuff. She loved it. So 
we were in a comfortable level of the society living. There were poverty way below us. We yeah. were in the mid-level. We were not rich, 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 because the ones that they're rich, it was way different. You know? right. So here is an interesting part for, for everybody to know about it. In the United States, when you're living here, no matter what level of income you have, everybody can have two cars. They have houses. You know, we have poverty. We have people that they're living in the street too. So either their own problem, their drugs, or some bad luck sometimes happen. But the normal society, either you're really rich or really low, you, you can, instead of a Mercedes Benz, you can get a Honda. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like you can have the difference. In Iran, you can feel the difference of the levels. Especially when you go to the school, it's so, it's so obvious that you see who is really poor and who is really wealthy and who is in the middle level. There is no, there's no boundary. It's just like a levels and levels and levels. It's just a jump. So we were in the mid level, <laughs> not high and low, but at the same time, we were blessed that my dad was a physician. So they had a, the Islamic revolutionary guards that they always around in the streets and everywhere. That's the one that most of the family, they fear from and all right. that fear is coming from. So most of the time we were lucky enough to tell that our father is a physician of war, but kind of like a veteran. And they said, okay, just let him go. But otherwise, Did you have a lot of run-ins with the Islamic Guard? Oh, yeah. I, I got beat up from the really From well. what? For what? Well, you know, unfortunately, in Iran, they have much more funeral. They, they're celebrating much more of the imam's funeral that is thousands of years ago. He, he died, and then now they're just kind of doing something for it, rather than to just being celebrating some nice stuff. So it was one of these funeral nights that it was, we were driving inside the street. This is one of them. I had so many other, but this is one of them that they actually blew up my lips. Uh, and we were putting music in the car and it started to clapping. And one of these undercover revolutionary guard, they pulled over, they kind of like blocked our car. We had to stop in the middle of the street. All of a sudden they all came out and then they started pointing at me, come out this, that, what are you doing? You clapping at this time, at this night? It's a, it's a, a holy night. You have to be in the a, in a grief of the imam that he passed away and this and that. As he's talking, he slapped my face. And he slapped it. The other one punched me, and I couldn't figure it out. It was my lip. It was just, you know, I could feel wet. I couldn't even feel that I got just ripped off entirely from inside. So it was bad. And then my friend that he was a driver, he saw them. They said, what happened to you? He got in an argument and fight with them. It was just a shit show. At How the end, old just, were you? I was 17, 18 oh maybe. God. Yeah. So that was one of them. One time I had a long hair and I went to a, a semi-video club, you know, like blockbuster style at the time yeah. we had. And then yeah. I went over there to rent a movie. And then normally in these type of places, you could get some other Western movie under the table without any censors or any. Right. So. The, the guards didn't knew about these type of stuff. So, so, so many times undercover, they come and show themselves up as a customer. And that's what happened. Another time I got, I got actually beat up because of the long hair. So you have a long hair for a man. This is not right. Oh, <laughs> that's, I mean, stupid stuff. Well, it's stupid stuff, but I mean, it's like, I would think that it would be just constant fear. 
It is. That's why they want to make it up. You know, everybody there in the fear. And, um, you know, for this election that we went through over here, I think that in Iran they were following the election of the U.S. more than their own election that is coming up. Hmm. Because they were just like everybody, all the people in Iran, they love President Trump and hmm. all the government love pre the, uh, Biden. So they were just like a, people wanted it that Trump put much more pressure in Iran. So the, the actually government dies itself and kill itself which they started doing it lately but the government didn't want that the government wanted it to have a lower pressures and all that stuff so it's just a mess and your, is your i'm sorry keep going no yeah i mean it's just a mess and it's just like mind-boggling when you're seeing it that how much the election over here is in, is putting a pressure on and the people on the other side of the world you know jesus are your parents still in Iran? No, actually, we all pretty much ran out of there. How did you? How did you? When did you leave? I, well, I left right after my service. As soon as I could get, I was in Iran's navy, and as soon as I semi finished, I kind of like went for the uh, vacation out of it because after the training time, then you can go and work in the office time. So you can get some time off and go and visit family. So when I got the time off, I flew down to uh, Dubai. And then in Dubai, I had a medical situation at the time too. So, and I had a opening from, uh, which one call it? Um, the King Hospital in LA for my problem. So technically I went to Dubai, went to US Embassy and I got my visa for medical. I came over here and do my surgery. At the same time, uh, my sister was working for UN, and then she actually got arrested one time because of the suspicious of espionage for from her, and she oh espionage they thought espionage, it was, they yeah. thought it was espionage yeah well they kind of like they put it on her but she was the from the she was arrested in the United States or in Iran no in Iran in UN in Iran. <sighs> The, and she was, they were working with us south, I mean, somewhere in Africa for the kids. It wasn't anything about politics or and stuff. And then she ran out of there. She went to Germany for a while. And then uh, my father, actually, I, I finally could uh, have a job from my father over here. And my father got hired by a, a medical company over here. He flew down here because of them and then eventually my mother came in and then we went through the process of all the immigration it took pretty much like 15 years going through residency to citizenship and Jeez. over hundreds of thousands of dollars pretty much <clears throat> and then you all came to california yeah because again my famous uncle was here <laughs> so, the golden kalani the golden kalani is here and when we came here, he went back to Iran. So, what, where's the Golden Kalani right now? He's in Iran right now. He's going back and forth. He's the head of the, uh, one of the soccer team over there. And he was also an architect. So he does a lot of uh, stadium design. And um, he did a couple indoor soccer over here. Now he's implementing the same design back there. He makes like a lot of sport arenas and all that stuff. So he's a famous soccer player. On top of that, he's an architect. What's better than that's an honor for the 
whatever federation to have him, you know? So the he's much more famous Kalani. over there than here. The Golden Kalani. Is <laughs> yeah. that still his nickname? No, I mean, they oh, call him he's Mr. Kalani. I mean, he's, he's an old dude now. That's a, that's a great name. Yeah. All right. So just one last question about Iran. Did, did you, was it conscription that you had to serve in the Navy? Well, it was, it's actually mandatory for everyone over 18 to go and go for their duty and service. Right. And there are certain things that you can just deny for it. You get denial for it. And um, <laughs> interesting part, my, my medical condition, it, it actually helped me to come to the United States but it wasn't good enough for them to be denied for the service. So I had to go through that. But I was lucky that I got assigned to Navy. Because if you go for the military or other area that they had it, I, I wanted it to go to Air Force. Air Force, actually, I, I applied for it. I got declined on that one because of the test, the physical test. And then, and then I was lucky enough that the Navy had an opening, and then I joined what, how, so what was two years in the Iranian Navy like? Uh, interesting. I mean, I liked it. I wanted it actually to join over here, but at the same time, it was around the 9-11, and it was a different story at the time. Yeah. But um, uh, it was pretty interesting. You go for the three months of training. I was in a chemical, bacteria, and biological kind of uh, uh, regimen. And we were just like kind of like working in the lab most of the time, figured out if something's happened, the gas is coming in and how you're going to prevent that one and how you're going to like retrieve people and all that stuff. But at the same time, you have the normal training of like shooting gun, finding your way in the starway and all that thing. And then toward the end, you're going and working on the ship. And there are certain things that you need to learn it for the emergency stuff as, a, as my regiment. It was different, different story. I mean, everybody has a different task to do it. But at the end, when you finish that three months, after that, you're just working in the office pretty much. You don't do hmm. anything. You know, I mean, it was just boring. And so were, were, you, become... were you planning on going to the United States? Were you plan the, the, the trip to Dubai to go to the U.S. Embassy, that oh, must man. have been, that must have been a, a plan. That was another memory for my life, my entire life. Um, well, I had to go to, I went to Dubai and we went to the actually embassy. We showed them, we showed them all the paperwork and everything. I just want to give you this thing to see what it, what it happens yeah. to get it. They said it, no problem. A young 20 years old male from Iran, Middle East is going to go to United States for a surgery. And I had all this stuff ready to go. So... And I showed it to them, said, no problem. Well, we have to do the FBI checking. I said, okay. But the, so, the, US, the U.S. Embassy had to do an investigation on you. Yes, exactly. So to allow you to get that one. Because you're, you're in a, one of a candidate for no-no visa at all. Right. So for the age and everything. But um, long story short, 16 days, I was living in Abu Dhabi in a dorm with a couple of my friends that were studying in Abu Dhabi University. So I was driving every morning with a taxi going, coming all the way to Dubai, going to the U.S. Embassy, going up floor. And then you go to in a cube, the cube locks behind you. And then you sign the paperwork, the person looks at you. 
and then they said that okay either you're good and if if they if the fbi finds something against you the night the day before the, when you go inside that cube the door doesn't be, behind you doesn't open anymore the actually front in front of you is that's a door that is opens and you get hanged so it was the nerve-wracking time oh so that if you want to go over there and you don't want him to find it but 16 days it, it every Every other day I had, or every three days, I had to go over there and I had to sign that and I show myself they get a picture and then you come back. So, so for did doing you that your, until you get your was your Was your family in any danger when they were doing, when the FBI was doing an investigation on who you were? I would mm. imagine that it would not be good if the Islamic Guard knew that you were being investigated by the FBI. No, I mean, they know... That they have a lot of citizens of the United States that they're also Iranian citizens. In Iran, dual citizenship is not allowed, so you're not allowed to show both of the passports. You always show your Iranian passport. But at the same time, they're not against that one. They're against... There is so funny was that at a time, my father was a head of a medical for a, uh, one of the Iranian uh, government side, uh, uh, kind of like a manufacturers. And um, they just related to him and said, that, well, you're not okay to get the visa because you're working for a semi-partial government-related company and we're not allowed to give you a visa. But my mom, she was actually an individual that she was, was working for a normal company, no relation to the government, and she was able to get the visa. However, no, neither one of them they showed at the time. They came here. But um, yeah, it was just kind of tough because whatever Iran did to U.S., I don't blame them. I mean, right now they have to take all the precautions, you know, and right. that's part of it to go through it. It's, so that's a harrowing situation, and and I mean, if you don't mind uh, talking about it, I know that you're about to go through some surgery coming up. What do you? What is going on? How? What is? How is your health? Well. <laughs> I'm just make fun of it. Said that ever since I turned forty, my health has started to deteriorating a little bit. But um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have I have HS. Technically, is uh, stands for hydroiodinitis suppurativa. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a kind of chronic condition that's your own body against your own immune system fighting, and you can get different reactions towards it, and then it hits your skin. So that's the thing. I mean, you, it started getting s semi-infections around it, and that's the time that you have to remove those skins because your body cannot succeed the fight. And no matter how many antibiotics and all the other stuff you use, the body cannot succeed it, and it's super painful. So that's what I'm going through right now. I'm going to have a, a surgery in about a month, hopefully. Can't wait for anesthesia, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And then uh, it's going to be a recovery time for a while. This is going to be my sixth surgery for this problem in oh 12 years. Oh, my God. Now, this, would this, would this, was this something that you were having when you were in the military? You know, at the time, here's an interesting part, because at the time, I didn't know nothing about this disease at all. And it's only been three years I, I found out about this disease because I've been working with the University of Irvine dermatology and i had few professors that i was working with about it and i learned about it more than what it is but when i looked at it back 
yes, this is something that they don't know the cause of it, and they don't even know how to fix it. So there are experimental uh, biological drugs like Humira and stuff is out there. But when you look at the actual side effect, you may die and get a cancer off of it, but you have a beautiful skin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to joke, but I mean, that is funny. Yeah, man. but Come no, it on, is man. true. It is true. But and I, and I told them I don't want that. So there are, and at the same time, it's something that it can be genetic, it can be environment, it can be food, it can be all that stuff. So, but when I'm looking at it back toward my high school time, I had it in a mild level, but as your body growing and your hormones and your systems, everything is changing, this is, can either get aggressive or it can get disappear. So mine is unfortunately going toward the aggressive side. How does it affect you day to day? To be honest, this is, this is affecting right now both of my arms. And um, our job is with our hands. Right. And unfortunately, this one is, a, is hitting my nerves. You know when you're hitting your elbow and you're getting a tingly? Yeah. Uh, so I have that feeling and sensation at all time in my hand. In your hands? In both of them, yeah. So you're having this skin problem in your hands? It, well, technically it's on top of my arms, but because it's hitting the nerve, that's why I'm feeling it in my hand. How you does know? it affect your work? Oh, that's why I stopped. I mean, I, I did my best to finish up everything that I could. It was unfortunate that I had to call, call a few clients and even tell them that, you know what, I have to return the deposit. I, I'm, I'm not be able to finish it on time for you. So I, I had to do it earlier on that one, and I finished whatever I had in my hand, and just pretty much I stopped. I'm, right now I'm just trying to do small little things at a time until I go through the surgery. Like, and then the surgery is going to happen within the month. Mm-hmm. And then how, how long will, it be, will you have to, for recovery? You know, thank God, one of the benefits my body has it is a fast healer. So I'm, I'm looking for at least maybe one or two months. This is my prediction, but Still the doctor said three to four months. Still a long time. So, yeah, it is. And um, so we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward for faster. I mean, I got the pain a lot right now. I think that I can, I can take the pain of the recovery much easier. Of course. You of know? Course. So. Because you and I good. talked a few weeks ago, well, maybe a month ago, and you were telling me about this, and it, it, was, it, sounds, it sounds debilitating. It sounds oh, yeah. debilitating. It's basically like the skin, be- the, where your skin touches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's nothing really to kind of give you any type of relief? Well, I'm using aloe vera, the organic one. Right. I have it even in a plant at home. I, I cut it and I use that one as a soothing kind of thing. But at the same time, uh, I'm on the special painkiller that is only working on the nerves. It's not a normal painkiller for any pain. It's just working for the nerve pain. So that's kind of killing that sensation. And then I take about four different types of antibiotic a day. All of these together, it kind of can control it. But if I have two beer one night, the next day I'm done. Don't have any beer. That's no, why you always send me the emojis of the whiskey. Yes, because, no. <laughs> because and it's true. I used to do that with a, a beer because I was a beer drinker a lot. Then I realized that this is one of the worst problem is dairy and yeast so i cannot have either one of those huh. 
so and sweet so these are the one that is causing a problem whiskey i can handle it better than two bottle of beer i'll right. dead really it's no joke i mean the inflammation it goes to the level of pain is just is i can't i can't even describe it. it's so, bad all right so you're gonna have the surgery and hopefully it helps you for the time being what is the i mean does this is the future hold that you're going to be doing surgeries every few years or i hope not but it's possible <sighs> you know it's 50 50 i had i had my last surgeon in ucla he told me that i will do the surgery for you and that was on my leg and he said that i will do the surgery and i'm not guaranteed that it's not going to come back and now it started to coming back on too so it's just it is what it is. It is what it is. Well, you ha- I tell you, you have a spirit within you that's very contagious, infectious in terms <laughs> of happiness. Now, it made me feel like I was saying that what you have is infectious, and that's not what I was trying to say. Yeah. But, it, but, but, I mean, you're a very, very positive person, and I'm looking forward to trying to figure, trying to find out from you what you in your mind what's what's the next step for you. Oh man. A lot. Call me. The f- to be honest with you, first thing foremost, as soon as I get my health, I want to coordinate and get the hell out of Orange County. Right. It's been a long time. I mean, I established a life over here. Everything is fantastic. But I am not a city man. I'm a, I'm a mountain man. Hmm. I want to go to mountains. I want to go somewhere around Montana, somewhere around there, and just uh, having my own thing. But the concept is I wanted to expand definitely my shop i have so many ideas to what to do what not to do for the design of a business and all that stuff but in general i want to go somewhere to release my soul a little bit make it relax over here in orange county you feel so stressed you know it's just uh, i was driving in montana for two weeks and then over there the maximum speed is about like maybe 60 mile an hour right you know so and I, and I was just sometimes like getting frustrated about people who said, come on, it's an open road. Why don't you go a little bit faster? But then after two weeks, you get used to it. And then I came back to Orange County and started driving over here. Instead of what the heck is wrong with these people? <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody there in the race. You, and, and life is crazy over here, man. Is that right? Believe me. I mean, you, you really living in Orange County and working hard to be surviving in it, in my opinion. I tell my friends to said it. Look at you guys. The way you all living, you all work, 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 work. To just surviving what you want to have it. I mean, everybody can have whatever they want, but it's just survival mode. There is no much relaxation over here. Hmm. Especially Irvine became an industrial city now. So I mean, we have Google, we have Apple, we have all these big companies now right down here in Irvine. So, I mean, the, the concentration of a population here, it's all about work. Everything's about work. There's no relax. The only relaxation I see people do is obviously go to the beach, you know? So let's just back up a little bit just because now I want to get – so you've, you've gone to Dubai. You got your visa. You came to the United States. You had surgery in the United States. And how did you end up staying here? Um, actually I started to, when I had done my surgery, I got, uh, that was a totally different types of actually surgery too. And it took me a while to recover for it. In the meantime, the golden Kalani, my uncle, 
he was living here and um he was talking with one of his friends that they were looking for a graphic designer at a time so i was lucky enough that i was around and said hey this guy is a graphic designer can you sponsor him for his green card and he can work for you and he said that yeah, let's see his portfolio. And then I started showing my portfolio to them and they liked it, especially that I knew the Farsi language. And this is a Broadcom semiconductor company. And at a time they had a big franchise in Dubai and they wanted it to do a lot of advertisement in Dubai too. So I could be a great candidate for them to be able to write down in a Farsi Arabic language and also do the graphic design for them with the style of that side of the world so they got my sponsorship and finally um i could get my green card through them that's how i I just pretty much got sponsored did you learn english in iran well well we had private classes my parents they were kind of like mandatory for me and my sister my sister she loved to learn languages. I hate it. I always get failed in Farsi. You know, even the normal <laughs> language, I was getting failed at it. But my sister loved it. She knew German, she knew Italian, she knew English. And even if when she talks English and we talk side by side and say, that, how the hell do you guys relate it? She doesn't have any accent. I mean, I know I have an accent myself. I, I, I hear my own recording and I can see it, how so, so many areas is pretty thick. Or it do, the, the tongue doesn't even roll correctly. So no, you, I can listen, see that. You're not gonna, you sound great to me. I, can't, I can barely speak English. So and that's about <laughs> as good as it's going to get. So as far as I'm concerned, you're a goddamn genius. That's Thank the biggest you. problem that most Americans have is we don't know how to speak more than one language or maybe one and a half languages. No, so, you, so you learned it in Iran, but then you kind of like. And when you come over here, and to well, talking about the one of the language barrier in it, uh, you can cut this one out, but I have to say it. But the, I don't cut anything out. Okay. So. The day that I landed in the United States, uh, I had a the medical problem that I had at the time. You know, uh, it was hernia. And I didn't know anything about the hernia. I didn't know what it is, how it is, nothing. And I didn't know even the word. I just knew the balls, you know? <laughs> anyway, long story short, I came at the immigration officer. We stand over there and he looked at the passport and everything. The, the passport, the, the visa, it says B2 visa, which is actually for medical visa. And then he's asking me, he said, what's your reason to come to the United States? And I was just getting cold. I didn't know what to say. That was the first time an American police officer, that's the first impression you get, is just talking to you and asking you, what's your reason to come to the United States? And I didn't know what to say. And at the time I said, well, I have problems with my balls. (laughs) (laughs) And then he laughed and he stamped it and said, have fun. (laughs) <laughs> and then That's I the didn't best. know what did I said. I was in a shock. <laughs> <laughs> and I came out, you know, it just went, everything went smooth, came out. And I was supposed to call my dad to tell him that I landed, everything is fine. <laughs> and I called him and I told him what I said. And he started laughing. That's the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. Yeah. 
My ba- I'm here for my balls. I'm yeah, so I have a problem with my, my balls. You either want to let me in or what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? That's the best. That is the best. God bless that police officer. Yeah, man. Humor, I hope that he's listening to this one and he remembers it. So I know that guy. He was the only the- one he had a problem with his balls when he came to the United States. <laughs> that guy, you know what? That's the best. That is the best. That's the yeah. best story of all time. I get terrified from from the police, and I wouldn't even be able to say it's for my balls. I'd be too afraid. Well, I didn't know if I'm saying it correct or not. Instead of I just say it. (laughs) That is the best. That's the best. That's my first impression in the United States when I landed here. You said the right thing, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. That's like the open sesame of getting across the border, I guess. The funny part was he laughed and he stamped it and said, have fun. (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm on my way right now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that. Yeah. So, so, so you ended up working for for doing this. I mean, it just sounds like you just kind of everything kind of fell into place. Pretty and much, then, we had and, up and down with the immigration process because 9/11 happened. Oh, that's right. You know, and then now, were you a citizen? Did you become a citizen before or after 9/11? Oh, after. I even during the 9/11, I wasn't even a resident. I was just I was here with a, a work permit. Huh. So what kind of problems did you have? The worst one it was the time when uh, President Bush called for amnesty. So everyone who ever was in the process of immigration had to go to the federal building and show themselves to make sure they want to check you again as an FBI checking. Right. And um, in L.A., federal building, I think that it was in the third floor. You had to go and do that. And then in the 20th floor is a jail. So I seen with my own eye at the time, there was a family of a mother, father, and a uh, child, a guy. They went inside, but the mother was started screaming, crying, and all that stuff. The, the actually child got handcuffed, and he had to go up, but the parents could stay. The parents, the time that they came here, the child was about, say, about 16 years old, but now he was over 18, so he cannot be under the parents. He had to have his own case oh of immigration. God. So he had to get arrested to go up there until they figured out what the heck they were going to do. So at a time, it was really nerve-wracking <sighs> to go through that. And then um, that was a time that pretty much I officially changed my name too, you know, so because they, they screwed up my, my Iranian passport at a time. The way they, they spelled my name. So my, my Persian name is Amir Ali. It's a two name in one name. It's Amir Ali, which is pretty much is translate um, the king of gates of heaven. And it doesn't do anything to the response of the Arabic, like the Ali, whatever, at a time it was bombarded, the 9-11 shit. Right. So... The, they put the space between my, my name, the two names. So it's, they put Amir, space, Ali, Kalani. So every time it was, was, I was going to go and get a flight or somewhere, there were no question asked. The Blue Man group was taking me out, and they were just checking me, said, put your hands up, checking all your luggage, just because of that Ali in the center. So I had to change it. I came up with Andreas at a time because I was much more closer to the Greek as far as the color, and then instead of... You mean, Andre, you mean your, your, your coloring? Is more yeah, bright? I mean black hair and a kind of brown eyes and all that stuff. He said, I'm going to go Andreas. And I was working with a company at a time in New York that we're doing a computer chips and stuff for, Brod- for uh, Broadcom. So, uh, Procom. So, 
that was a time that I had to change the name to Andreas. But when I got my citizenship, I fixed the first name entirely and I add officially Andreas as my middle name. So it's now it's Amirali Andreas Kalani. That is crazy. It is. It's crazy. I can only imagine because, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I talk about 9-11 a lot because I was in Brooklyn and I was on the I was on a highway that saw I saw we my wife and I saw the second plane hit. And I know that in New York, it was very tough for a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern people, a lot of Sikh people, a lot of Indian people, people of color had a lot of hard time. Because there was this just visceral fear of Middle Easterners at the time. Yeah. It must have been for you. Oh, big time. Not to mention, you know, Iranians <clears throat> for, you know, for a long time have, you know, not been, you know, the most celebrated American people in America anyway. I mean, at the time, after Carter especially, you know, the yeah. Co- Ayatollah Khomeini and then the, all the hostage taking and not to mention the United States hadn't forgot about the uh, the Olympics. All the bombings and the all bombings, that stuff. The bombings, the Olympics. Yeah. So I can imagine you were on like triple, triple high alert. Oh, man. I mean, not even that. I mean, you were get. I mean, people talking about the actually racism and all that stuff is a first hand. You can feel it as a Middle Eastern. Yeah. Sometimes, especially. And um, I had I had a my friend of mine had an M3 convertible, and it was one of those canary yellow color. Yeah. And we were driving in a one street. He was just like going a little bit speed up, you know, and just a crazy fancy car. You seeing it? Two young dudes sitting inside. It's obviously a police officer pulling you over, and his name was Ali. And at the time, I didn't had that. Uh, I was green card. I was. I didn't have my citizenship yet, so it was still Amir Ali. So okay, two Ali in the car, and as soon as he came in, he said, uh, "Do you guys have any weapons or bazooka in the car?" He said bazooka. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And I and I looked at him and said, "Officer, I've been in service before, and I know the size of a bazooka. Do you think that we can fit the bazooka inside the M3 like this car?" You're a smart. And he ass. said, and he said that we ha- we have a right to ask it. Do you have it or not? I said, no, we don't have it. And he saw my pocket knife, and he put his hand on his gun and said, "Passenger, put your hands on the dashboard. I'm going to take this knife out. This is for your safety and my safety. You understand that?" And it was just a knife that you just take it out. The smaller than my own hand, hand. You know, it was just something legal. But the way he's acting towards you, just because of when we're seeing the names, yeah. what are you going to do? At some points, it becomes like a norm. You know, yeah. when I was going to the airport and the way they're acting towards you, so it becomes said, hey, look at this. It's going to be fun. Look, look, look. It's my turn. <laughs> so, you know, it becomes a co- comedy show for you. So when you, beca- when you became an American citizen, yeah. which is incredible. It and, is. And it, I, I am... I, I never have taken for granted my by being American. I'm proud to be an American. Absolutely. I would imagine the feeling. Tell me your feeling of when you passed the exam and then they swore you in. Oh man! As I said, I said it before. I hated the history. Yeah. But part of the citizenship, you have to study the history of the United States. And figure out why people came here and why they call it United States and 
why all these st stuff happened to it you know all these why that you always didn't know and you just kind of subconsciously know about it is united states is america right when you know it's a, when they say a land of opportunity why it was a land of opportunity why it is a land of opportunity that was so fascinating and it's a proud moment for you that you see it that you are you are one of the selected people that they chosen to come to this path and migrate from one side of the world, come over here with the hope of better, and you succeeded. Because not that many people can succeed this either. You know, I know people, I had a friend of mine that they came over here, they couldn't succeed, they left. You know, so, and it's a lot of pressures, a lot of scenarios can happen that you cannot succeed that. But it was a really a proud moment, but at the same time, it was a proud moment that you become an American citizen that so many people in the world, they won't even come and see this place one time in their life, but you're now you're part of this. So it was really a, really a great moment. And when you go for the, I mean, the test is just a normal easy because the, the officer is asking you questions and you have to respond it. I bet you I don't pass it. Well, it, it's an interesting part because he said that too. So I even asked my, these <laughs> things in, from my own kid. They don't even know. But um, uh, it, I wouldn't even, some of them, I, I wouldn't remember it right now either. But the thing is that I have the knowledge to go back at it. And I right. know it. I got the core concept of why you become a citizen. At the time when I turned out to sit, being a citizen, I think I was 25, 28 or something like that. I don't even remember exactly what age but it was age enough to understand the concept of immigration you know i wasn't a kid like my own cousins my own cousins when they came over here they were like around six or seven years old and they just went straight to the school so they don't know the taste of immigration yeah it, but that's, it the, has... that's the kid that's the children of the golden kalani they're getting the first class treatment i mean yeah, golden kalani doesn't get pulled out at the at the airport when, he, when <laughs> golden kalani shows up he's going right there going here can you cup right to your seat sir yeah god damn the golden kalani had it good didn't he <laughs> yeah he did he had a good one at a time but um, yeah, so it was just a different. I, I really, I really loved it. The whole process and going through it, and when you graduate and you get your certification, and um, all that stuff is yes, I did it. You know, it's just a different feeling for it. You you accept a lot of hardship, but you made it happen. That's you know? it's just such a. It, it is really the American experience. It is to to, to I mean, it's like you worked. To become an American citizen. Yes, exactly. That's an, I, I, you, I, the accomplishment. You're feeling it. I can't even describing it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. You can accomplish. You can kind of. I don't know how. Maybe the time that you accomplish something the best in your life is something hmm. that has changed your life. You know, maybe yeah. you got a good degree or something. But it's some undescribable. I. It's just something amazing. That's. It's it's just so it's so it's so admirable. It's admirable, and and I know that I I honestly, when I look at your work, and now we're gonna kind of head back into your work. There's such a quality to your work that there's an exuberance. There's this there's a there's a lust for life. There's it's very it's more than just a cutting tool. These are beautiful objects coming from a place, coming from a heart that really has gone through some shit. Thank you. 
you know? yeah it's it, i always say it said that uh my my thing is that when you're holding one of my knives that's my own that say right it's is my own energy that is got frozen in that moment that's what you're holding there's sincerity you know it's very they're very since the work is very sincere and now i'm just out of curiosity i know you're on team combat you're with the combat abrasive guys those are you and and neil and Mareko and uh and will brigham and you guys are you guys did a great video on uh, and you did some work uh uh and uh kylie kylie cumming kaylee cummings and it would it was a it's just you become also someone in the knife making community that's very well received i feel like there's this anointment or something like that because <laughs> you've really you've you clawed your way from the bottom you know yeah pretty much i mean uh, I was looking at it the other day. I I just posted uh, on my Facebook. Uh, it was the six-year anniversary. It was the first time ever that I met uh, Steve Coaster, Jason Knight, um, and I was actually got guided over there by Mike Tyree. He was he's still my mentor, and he was the one that he told me that there is a hammer in in Tuller, California. You should come over there, and you will learn a lot in these. And then, so that was six years ago, I went over there. And um, ever since I started seeing all these guys, they just making knives and doing all, I mean, I was making my own knives. That's how I got to, uh, to get to know Mike Tyree. But I was making this small little, originally I was making small little sword forging out of nail for my wire sculpture. I call him Andy Man. And, um, and I was making a scenery out of it, different types of stuff. And Andyman, we've been around forever. I mean, I've been doing Andyman from, since 92, making these wire sculptures. And then said, if I can make a small piece of sword and knife, why not making a big one? So I made one. I didn't know nothing about the metallurgy at the time. And I went to Anaheim show. I met Mark Tyree, and I knew him through Pinterest at the time. Pinterest was the first... It was the beginning of a time of a Pinterest that it started coming out and a lot of knife makers started posting knife images. One of them, uh, it was Mike Tyree. And I get to know his name because it was, I was trying to, he's reading his last name, Tyre, Tyree. And um, as soon as I saw him on the table, I said, oh, I know you. Can you critique my knife? And I show it to him and um, it was just a steal. It wasn't anything. It was the shape of a knife. His steel is the shape of a knife. And he said, you know, it looks good, but you need to come for a touch-up in the shop, and I will tell you what to do. So a week later after that, I went to his shop down in Wickenburg, Arizona. That was six years ago, almost seven years ago. And then ever since I went to his shop, I got the disease. I couldn't let go. Hmm. It was just a stock to me, and I was making knives and ha having him critique me for about a year, year and a half. And then that was a time that um, I was in my highest level in the corporate life over here. I was a, a head of a graphic, and technically it was a web department of the QSC company. It was an audio company. They make all the sound systems and all that stuff. And I was the head of the web at a time over there. And um, uh, I wanted to just get the promotion to go to the next level. My boss, he was an actually a musician himself, and he told me that I know you're an artist, 
if you go to the next level of this one, you know you cannot go back to your art just the same way as I cannot go back because now right. the, the work is going to eat you. So he made me to think about it. And then I was making a set of six knives at a time, really fancy handles and all that stuff. And then uh, I decided to resign all of a sudden. And then I talked to a, a, a friend of family we had it, and I told her she was an American lady. She taught me a lot. God bless her. She passed away. But she told me to take a control in your hand. I know who you are. Go and resign and pursue your heart. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> Whatever she said, I'll do it. So I went over there in my, in my boss office and I put the resignation letter. I said, what the heck you're doing? He said, I'm going to pursue my passion, my art. You said, I cannot grow it and I cannot stock over here. So I'm just going to go and do something else. <laughs> so I came out, I ran my Kickstarter and the same people from that company, they were so supportive of me. They pledged a lot for me in that campaign and along with so many other people my own boss actually he became the highest pleasure in that campaign wow so i had a lot of good support from them and then i was able with the kickstarter money i was able to get my first grinder from travis sports wow and then i got my jet bandsaw and um small little uh mini uh mealing drill press from harbor freight but it was good enough for me to get the job done Right. So got that one and I delivered about 198 blades in about three months. And wow. I was really good at it. I was touching, talking to people because I, I started getting involved with other stuff on Kickstarter, other people. And I was the third person after uh, our friend, um, forgot his name. The, you had a, you had a, a Quentin Middleton. Yes. Jared Thatcher. Yes. Quentin. After Quentin, I was the, the second one after Quentin that I had my Kickstarter. I saw him and I saw another company. I forgot the name of it. They were the Chinese manufacturer kind of thingy. They came in and they asked for 100000 and they sold over a million. And, Quint, and Quentin came in and I think that he asked for something about 15, 20, something like that. He got it. Said, oh, I can do it too. Why not? Oh my God, this Kickstarter kick your butt, man. I mean, it's not a, it's not an easy process to go through. Yeah, but, but I, you, but you, you went through the, 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 yeah, it sounds like you went through a hell of a lot more than just doing the Kickstarter. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. You, and then immigration and all that. I mean, come on, man. So let's just get it done. If I can migrate from the other side of the world <laughs> yeah. over here, I can make the Kickstarter happen. Let's just do it. That little, that I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about young you in a, in a, in an Iranian Navy outfit going through a, in, in Bahrain, going through a, 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 a small room waiting to get locked up. I'm sure the Kickstarter wasn't that. <laughs> Hard. yeah no it wasn't it wasn't that hard you know <laughs> we've done it before it's like a king's man style <laughs> yeah no so i was pretty much the third person got got funded on kickstarter and then but kickstarter was really good because it made me really organized for this type of a business and i could understand the concept of the business i've been always an artist but not an entrepreneur and i'm still not an entrepreneur but i but as a maker you have to understand the business aspect of the business, the side right. of this one too. You can't just create arts and that's it. And um, so it was really helped me for the workflow, 
how to communicate with the clients, how to deliver, how to present, and all that stuff. It was a really good case study as a startup knife making. But then after that, when you finish that, now you have to apply that and start it to make it happen more again. How you want to introduce yourself, how you want to come up. Some people, they just make one knife a month and they just mass email everyone. Right. Some people, they just make like a 12 a month and then do that. So it's just different. And um, I learned that, that you as an artist and as an individual, whoever you are, you mold your own audience and you tell your audience how you're going to present it. So that mm. took me a while. That took me three years to understand that. So, and I'm still struggling. Don't get me wrong. But um, uh, I got way better in the process to figure out this one. I always love to have much more help, you know, especially on the business side of it. But um, uh, I'm learning. I'm still learning. And God bless, I mean, all these YouTube university, you know, you learn a lot of business side of it. Other yeah. than the knife making, you, learn, you can learn the business, how to market your business, how to approach clients, what people are expecting from you, what's the best customer service, you know. All that stuff is matter for if you want to run this business. Otherwise, go back to the normal nine to six job, you know, and just get that one done. You're fascinating because you're one of these knife makers that I, I, I have like a handful of friends who were very like-minded in terms of seeing this as a business. And a lot of people make knives and they think, I'm going to somehow will it into a business without really you know it's like give me the tips without having me to change what i'm doing now how can i make this a business by just adding something as opposed to having to rethink your whole strategy exactly and i think that you've done that in the sense where you had the art background you had the design background i'm sure all your web design helped you i've seen i've gone to your website it's outstanding your Thank pictures you. are beautiful you know, it seems as though you've thought everything through. And I just like to hear when you talk about how many knives a month and this and the marketing and the customer service, that's the serious part that a lot of people are unwilling to kind of embrace. And that's the thing. For me, I'm feeling blessed to be able to work in a corporate prior to this. Because in corporation, you're under pressure to do teamwork, to learn certain attitude to approach certain way to the manner of communication you know how you want to send the email all that stuff is matter in cooperation if you right. don't learn those inside the work you wouldn't learn it in the school right so i learned that and i apply all those years of learning through working in the corporation life now i'm applying it in a much more kind of like a polished way of it the way i want it to be for my own business I'm sure it's not perfect, but at least it's the way that I'm comfortable and I can see the result from my customers too. You know, you, you as an artist, you have a respect too and you need to, it's a reflection. If you put a respect out for the people, you will get it back. If you just come up and, and just not having a respect for anyone, you wouldn't get any respect back at all. Yeah, that's unfortunately a lot of people have, don't understand people who have not been in customer service at all don't realize the incredible value that customer service is. You know, I, I know a lot of very gruff knife makers who say, or artists or whatever is I do what I, I do my thing, you buy it or not. And I, yeah. I don't think that, I don't think that they realize that, you know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of customer service goes a long, long way. 
Yeah, it's a commitment, you know. If you want to have, I mean, nowadays, it's really good and, and is a blessing to be able to do your business through social network. I mean, a few years ago, we didn't even have these things. Right. You know, so it's good to do that. But you need to know that it's called social network. You're still socializing with people. Right. It's not just a text and all that stuff. It's another person behind that text. You have to remember that. And you have to send that respect back to them. Otherwise, I mean, there are, I had people that they came to me in aggression mode, kind of like they wanted to do custom this and that. And I started to work around, because for me, it's just also a study. You said it is a 50-50. Either he's going to place an order with you or not. Right. But let at least see if you can make him calm down and make him happen instead right. of going toward the aggression. No, I don't do this. No, I don't do that. And I finalize it to the point, sometimes you cannot succeed, but I finalize it to the point that the guy said, you know what, you gave me so much idea, I want you to do whatever you want to do. So that, thank you. Now we'll deliver you the best as I can. You know, so it just depends on how you're approaching it, but it's so hard for normal artists. doesn't matter if it's a knife maker or anyone. Whoever is inside the art industry, I realized it doesn't understand that side of a customer service and communication with people and is the most important part of it. I agree with you. I'm going to backtrack one more time. We're rounding third. I need to know more about the Golden Kalani. <laughs> I need to know. I, you need to give me some Golden Kalani stories because I'm sure, I have a feeling, there's some good Golden Kalani stories. I need to know about your uncle. I have to know. Well, he's, he's a, such a cool guy, and he's a fun, adorable person. He, when, when we're around him now, he's, a, he's pretty much the one of the... We have my dad's uncle, their uncle. He's in 83 right now, knock on wood. He's the oldest Kalani. And then he married to an American lady, and all of their cousin on that side, they're half Persian, half American. We have a set of Kalanis in, actually in your side, in New Jersey, and um, um and um at the same time new jersey and new york both of them and then my own uh, uncle he goes back and forth coming over here but yeah he's a cool guy he always had that ego that i'm a champion you know and i told him one day he said hey uncle your time is past now it's my turn i will make the kalani last name famous again but not for the soccer for something different what did he so, say when you said that? He was pissed. But my, <laughs> gran my grandpa, God bless him, he passed away too, but he was around at the time too. He said, that he just looked at him and said, if you can do it, go ahead and do it. Like he kind of like pushed me. <laughs> said, okay, I'll do it. So now when our cousins, the American side of our family, when they come and visit or when we talk over the phone, said that, yeah, we, we like the Kalani knives, you know? Like they're always supporting. So they all have the Kalani knives and they're proud of it. See, it's just getting growing up, Kalani Knives. I love it. I love that. I love that. In my mind, I, I, I picture this, you know, you know, swarthy blonde guy wearing like aviator glasses and a crew neck, just kind of cruising through ter terrain and, you know, <laughs> zipping around on the, in the soccer team. And Oh, yeah. He was the, mo the most famous one. One of, I mean, there were, we had so many of them, but he was one of the most famous one. And he had the... He was actually the only educated soccer player at a time. That's why he got an actually a specific certification from Shah himself in person because of appreciation that how much study was important for him 
uh, same as the sport. What was his name? Uh, Hussein Ali. All right, I got a picture was, of him. I will send it dude, to you. He, I got a picture of him. That's a good-looking dude right there. Yeah. I'm on his picture. The Golden Kalani is a stud. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he, he was a he really a handsome dude. A handsome dude. Real intense. Wow. He, it really is blonde. Yeah, he is. My aunt is like that. My grandma was actually, uh, 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 which one call it? My grandma was blonde and blue eyes. So my uncle and my aunt, they turned out. And my grandpa was dark hair, black hair, I believe, and brown eyes. And my dad came in like that. They had a very, the, the Golden Kalani wore an incredible, uh, their soccer team outfit was red with white sleeves. That's a really, uh, um, you know, uh, that, that's an actually a color of Persepolis, which is going back to the history of Iran, the Persepolis down in the city of Shiraz, which is uh, 2,500 years ago. So that's an actually a color of that. And that specific team with that color is still until today, it's super famous. And people, they get like in a fight against it. So, I, the nephew of the Golden Kalani. Yeah, yeah. So, I have good timing on that. Unbelievable, unbelievable. So, what's the next step for you? You're gonna go through surgery. We're gonna get through. I'm, my fingers crossed. This is gonna be a complete, complete and utter take uh, health takeaway. You're gonna be in good shape. Two months, let's say, let's say you're out of the hospital, out of rehab, you're back in, you're back up on your feet in January, February, maybe let's say March. Yep. What are you doing? What's the first thing you're going to do? My first thing actually is fly out to Jason Knight. Last year, we were about to go and, and have a, a, just a hammering together, hanging out with him. Um, I, I was visiting, uh, Actually, Steve uh, Schorzer down right. in Florida in February, and I, and I had my ticket ready for April to go to Tennessee. But then the COVID stuff happened. John Wayne Airport is closed, so I had to kind of like push my uh, flight for later. So, and I want to go around the cool time in Tennessee I so imagine. I can spend more time inside the forge with Jason. Uh, but I have my ticket ready, so I just need to, that's the first thing I want to do it. Uh, I talked to Neil, probably I'm going to go and visit him in Hawaii too. And then, uh, Steve Schwarzer probably is going to join us over there as well. So we're going to be together, but I don't know, but, uh, it's just, a so many plans. I want to see so many people before I do my final move to somewhere else out of the Orange County, but I want to get these flights done. I want to go and visit these people. You know, so, and also Morocco. I want to go and see Morocco too. I want to spend the time with at least some of these guys as much as I can. Because you don't, I mean, it's always nice to watch everything inside the, you know, the actual Instagram and social network. But when you hang out with them inside the shop and you see them in work, it's just way different story. Yeah. You learn and you can absorb more. And um, there are small little tiny tricks and tiny stuff that you don't even think about it. You can come across of it. So I really love that. I need to do that. Mark Tyree, he's actually, we, I have appointment with him. I need to go and uh, get my lesson for folder. I want to go to him. So yeah, that's my all education side. 
But other than that, I'm really looking forward to expand my shop area, either in Orange County somewhere where I can find it out of the Orange County. I want to expand the shop. It's time for me to go to the next level. I done all my refinement on the concept of the knife making. Now I know how everything needs to be done and what's good and what is not. Now it's a time for me to go to the next level, which is making uh, my own personal Damascus. And I need a shop for that. So the new golden Kalani. Yeah. The new golden Kalani <laughs> is going to come up. I'm, I can't tell you how fascinating it was to talk to you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Nephew of the golden Kalani, Andreas Kalani. If you don't know, now you know. Go follow him on Instagram and Andreas Kalani. Is it Andreas Kalani on Instagram or? Yes, it is. Everywhere. Andreas Kalani on everywhere. Andreas All the social Kalani networks. Andreas Kalani and everywhere. Actually, if you want some good grinding tips, he's got great grinding tips on his website. Do you have a YouTube as well? Yeah, that's also Andreas Kalani. Dude. I'm started actually putting more of those type of stuff. It's just uh, as, as Don said last week. It, the production video is so much harder it's for just by work. yourself, it's you know? It's too much work. Actually, I have to thank you because I learned how to finish my Kydex better because you started using uh, the compound from oh, yeah. uh, Combat and putting them on your buffing wheels, the purple buffing, the pu purple compound on the, on the buffing wheels, and that's helped my game up, so I thank you very much. My pleasure, my friend. This is, how, this is what it is. We all X-Men. We all have different powers, you know, so all we right, all can help well, each other in that. I, then then X-Men assemble. Is that what they say? I don't think that's what they say. <laughs> well, Andreas, I can't thank you enough. You've been fantastic. Everybody go follow Andreas Kalani all over the place. He's, his work is beautiful. It's the stem to stern package. He's a total package, and he's a fascinating guy. And now you know the trials and tribulations of a man who is on the way to be the Golden Kalani. There was, an, there was a Golden Kalani, but this is now the new Golden Kalani. He's headed that way. <laughs> he's got to tell his cousins, he's got to tell Uncle, Uncle Golden Kalani to just, just take, your, take a backseat because the new Golden Kalani's here. And his <laughs> thank name you, is thank Andreas you. Kalani. So Appreciate it, it. I'm with you. So the next thing is, guys, go to Instagram. And go follow Full Blast Podcast. I got a great episode next. I'm super excited. I'm going to be talking to Leah Arapach. She is an extraordinary fabricator, metal sculptor, blacksmith. She does amazing work. I'm fascinated by her. She was on the uh, Axe and Iron Podcast, and she was outstanding. I, Chris Cash is going to get mad at me as I'm, t I'm poaching all his, his guests, but that's just the way it is. So go follow us on Instagram, uh, Full Blast Podcast. And if you can leave us a message on on the on on uh, leave a review. Do, do me a favor, huh? Come on. And then pretty soon I'm going to be announcing the uh, the winners. I'm still getting in these these um, messages and these stories of redemption for the Isotunes headset. So I'm going to do another week or two, and then we got we got that. And then for the Black Friday show, I'm going to have both Ben Snoor and Jonathan Porter. That's going to be the cowboy. It's going to be cowboy talk. All cowboy talk. It's going to be 100% cowboy. All bullshit. So thanks again, guys. And um, Andreas, thank you so much. Thank you. You're Have a good best. one. You too, my man. Cheers.
If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.